if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 7. We're finishing out the Sermon on the Mount today, and we, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a while now, um, but it's worth noting that when Jesus were, was speaking these words, when Jesus was giving this sermon, it, it would have been all in one setting. It wouldn't have been over, you know, weeks or months, you know, like we have. Uh, and so, you know, Jesus kind of blasted his hearers from the fire hose in, in one, one fell swoop. We've had the privilege of uh, going through this over uh, a period of time and kind of taking a deep dive and dissecting some things. And uh, hopefully this portion of Matthew has been uh, helpful to everybody. I know among the pastors we've just talked about that, that we've thoroughly uh, enjoyed it and uh, God has worked in our lives uh, in it. And so hopefully that's true for you all as well. Um, I'm going to embarrass myself here for a minute. I'm, I'm not a particularly handy guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm techie, but I'm not real handy. And this summer, my wife and I have been doing some projects uh, around the house, um, kind of learning, uh, figuring some things out as we go. We, we built the fence. We, we've done some landscaping. Uh, but not too long ago, a couple months ago now, I, I had a kind of on a whim decided, you know, I want to, I want to build a planter. And so we, we have a deck and there's a set of steps on each side of the deck and in between the two sets of steps, there's this place that was just dirt. I thought it'd be kind of a cool place for a planter, put some things in it. And so did my research and it was trying to decide, okay, do I want to do like the small blocks or the big blocks? The big blocks are heavy, but they look cool. The small blocks are easier to deal with, uh, but you got to buy more of them. And I'm, I'm analytical this way. And so I'm trying to figure this out. And one day I, I pop onto Facebook marketplace and there's a contractor that pulled a bunch of the big blocks out of a job that are still in pretty good shape and he had more than I needed. Uh, and so I went and just, I bought these big 60 pound blocks. Um, and on a Saturday, we built a planter. When I stepped back to take a look at the planter that I had built, one side was level, one side was like this. <laughs> and part of the top was kind of wavy and I, I realized, <laughs> I, I learned a lesson in that moment, like okay, I built left to right and I should have built bottom to top, right? lesson learned. Fortunately, this thing's not very big, so I got to pull it apart and do it again, you know, level the bottom and, and, you know, build up. But as that pertains to today, what, what we're going to look at today is like building on the right kind of foundation. It, it matters. It matters. I built this planter and I gave no consideration to the bottom level. It was only like three blocks high. So again, not, not very big, but, but I just didn't give any thought to that. I just got these blocks and thought, okay, we're going to do this and knock it out in a few hours on a Saturday and to, took a look at it and realized, okay, I should have thought about the foundation because it really does matter. And now it's created more work for me uh, that I have to do uh, in order to rectify what I didn't think about before. Jesus in Matthew 7, starting in verse 24, he has this to say. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Building on the right foundation matters. How we approach Life matters. Again, we, we've taken our time to go through the Sermon on the Mount, and, and as Jesus is winding it down, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine, in other words, all these words that 
his hearers would have been exposed to in a moment that, that we've been exposed to over weeks and months, all these words, that's what Jesus is talking about. Whoever does what has just been said is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. What, what are these words? And just kind of rapid fire, these words that, that we've heard from Jesus throughout Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 begin with the Beatitudes, and we begin to see in that that Jesus' perfect life is one that we're called to emulate, right? And we, we look at Jesus to an extent as our example. And the reason I say to an extent is that if Jesus is solely our example, if that's all that he is, Jesus will crush you because we can't live like he lived. If we could, we wouldn't need him, right? So, so Jesus is more than just our example. He's our perfection. We know that, that we can't be perfect, right? We, we try to emulate Jesus' life as best as we can, and we fail over and over and over and over and over and over. Thankfully, Jesus is perfect, and thankfully, big word, but this thing called imputation where, where we can be the recipient of His perfection or His righteousness because of what He did on the cross. But even in Jesus' perfection, we know that He was reviled for the way that He lived. We know that, that not everybody received Him, right? We know that, that He came to the people that He created, and we killed Him, right? We nailed Him to the cross. And so He was reviled for the way that He lived in perfect obedience to His Father, but as Christians, we're, we're called, like we take on the name Christian because we ought to be like the Christ, right? One who is like Christ, the Christian. And so as much as we can, we're called by Christ to emulate His life as far as it is up to us. In all of our brokenness, in all of our fallibility, right? That, that's where things like grace and forgiveness come into the picture, mercy, those things come into the picture because we're broken and we're fallible. And what we can't do on our own, Christ has done for us. Where we fail, He succeeds. And we see that uh, in the Beatitudes, that, that we're called to live in this world in such a way that's countercultural to the world in which we live. And that countercultural way of living is very much like Christ. I think often as Christians, we try really hard to fit in. And, and rightfully so, to a point, right? We, we don't want to push people away. We want people to hear the message. And so, so we try hard to, to fit in and, and in our efforts sometimes to try to not be abrasive. Um, we we kind of miss the mark of living like Christ lived. I, I avoid, I don't like hard things. You don't either. Like we avoid adversity usually at all costs, but, but we're told that we'll be reviled when we try to live like Christ. It's, it's just not going to rub everybody the right way. And as Christians, we have to come to terms with that. We see after the Beatitudes this call to be salt and light. We see that Christians are in this world for a distinct purpose. Have you ever thought about why it is that when you come to faith in Christ, you don't just automatically get zapped to heaven? I, a pastor that I knew once wrote a book and he posed this question in, in this book. A little, a little girl uh, came into his office one time. They had VBS at their church, and this little girl wandered into the pastor's office and said, Pastor, I, I have heard in VBS this week how wonderful heaven is, and my, my home isn't great. Why don't we just go to heaven when we, when we know Jesus? 
And the reason that we don't go to heaven the instant that we come to know Christ is this call to be salt and light in the world. This call for the Christians, the ones who have been reconciled to God, to now go into the world and help others become reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5. That's the call to the Christian of why we're on this earth. After that, we see that, that God's law is good when, when Jesus talks about righteousness. God's law is perfect. We see that we're not perfect and that we can't fully fulfill God's law. Jesus came and He lived in an obedient life, perfect obedience to His Father. We, we don't do that. We can't do that on our best day. Thus, our need for someone who can do what we can't do. Our need for Jesus to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. And then we get into these sections in the Sermon on the Mount that you have heard it said sections if you remember those. And what we find in these you have heard it said statements is that our bad deeds are, are worse than you think they are. The things that we do that we already know are bad, they're, they're worse than what you're thinking, right? So we're told that Anger is the spark that stokes the fire of murder. So, so it's bad enough that you're angry, but Jesus equates your anger to murder. Lust is the spark that stokes the fire of adultery. So it's bad enough that, that our eyes wander, but Jesus equates it to actually doing the things that we think about doing. We're told as it pertains to divorce that marriage is a beautiful picture of Christ's love for the church, but we mar that picture because of the hardness of our hearts due to sin. Even when we try to do good things like keep an oath, we're, we're told that we have an inability <laughs> to keep an oath, right? We don't even do the things that we say we're going to do, right? We, we suffer from, from lack of integrity, and so we're, we're told as Christians that we ought to be people of integrity in the world. Retaliation we have this inability to trust God that He's just going to handle things. I was driving home a week ago Friday, late one night uh, from Bend, uh, probably about 10 o'clock at night, and, and we're, we're driving on Highway 97. And if you've noticed, like people go 80, like that's the normal speed on the highway now, it's 80. And all of a sudden I realized there was a vehicle behind me, and, and I don't know where they came from, but they were so close I couldn't see them in my rearview mirror. They just scooted over enough where all of a sudden I saw a headlight in my side mirror. And I mean, I'm talking inches, what it felt like, not feet from me. And I'm in the left lane. I'm passing cars going, I won't say how fast I was going, but faster than I should have been going. And this just riding my bumper and I got pretty upset. And my first instinct was it's time for a brake check, right? <laughs> they were so close that I thought it might not be wise this undisclosed speed to do a brake check. And so I decided I'm just going to stay in the left lane for a while. <laughs> right, I passed all the cars that I was going to pass. And I decided if, if this guy wants to pass me, I'm going to make him pass me on the right. I'm not scooting over. <laughs> and so I stayed for a while and, and he, he jumps over into the right lane and passes me and uh, does the one finger wave as he's passing me and honks his horn. And then my, my next instinct was I'm going to bright light this guy for as long as I can. <laughs> I, I didn't do that. <laughs> But that was my thought. My, my default in that situation was to retaliate. I didn't, I didn't stop and think, like, maybe, maybe this guy's got a medical, like, maybe he's got an emergency. I didn't think that oh, maybe the guy's just having a bad day. 
no benefit of the doubt. I just this whole time was thinking about how I could retaliate. My, my wife's in the passenger seat and she's on Facebook oblivious to everything that's going on, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> Retaliation is our default as human beings, right? And, and we're told in the Sermon on the Mount that we don't have to retaliate. If someone takes from you, give them more. If someone slaps you, let them slap you again. We're not told as Christians to be doormats, but we're told that we don't, we don't have to retaliate. And, and if that's not hard enough, we're called to love not the most lovable people in the world, but we're called to love our enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. Is there any more difficult command in all of Scripture than to love your enemy? <laughs> I'm convinced that's the most difficult thing that Jesus has ever said, is to love your enemies. We want to take vengeance on our enemies. We want an eye for an eye, or we want two eyes for an eye, so they won't bug us anymore, right? But think about who it is that's telling us to love our enemies. The person that's telling us to love our enemies is the person that the Bible says, while we were his enemy, what did he do? He died for us. He gave His life for us while we were still His enemies. The Bible tells us that the ultimate and definitive act of love is that we would lay down our life for our friends, which maybe some of us can get behind that. But Jesus, Jesus laid down His life for His enemies because He considered His enemies to be His friends. Let, let that boggle your mind. And so you have all these kind of, you've heard it said statements, again, that remind us that our, that our bad deeds are worse than we think that they are. And then Jesus gets into this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, and He talks about our, our good deeds and tells us that our good deeds aren't good enough. Like, they're not nearly as good as you think they are. Not only that, like, your good deeds are, they're worse than you think they are. Right? He talks to us about hypocrisy. The hypocrisy that when we give, we give so that we can be seen, right? We do good deeds so that people will see us. I've had more than once over the years of being a pastor, and this is not frequently, but a handful of times that stick out in my mind where somebody would come up to me on a Sunday morning and flash their check and say, hey, I just want you to know what I'm putting in the box today. That's happened. Even in our doing of good things, like being generous, the Bible tells us that, that we don't even have the pure motives that we think we do in our generosity. How many of you have ever done a good thing or been generous and it's like you just kind of hope that somebody saw that happen? You hope that somebody noticed it and you hope that maybe somebody will acknowledge it. Even in our prayer, Jesus tells us that, that often we pray so that we can be seen, right? We pray so that, that people will pat us on the back and say, man, that, that was a really awesome prayer, right? We do that. I'm pretty convinced that some, some of the best prayers are just like the worst English ever. Some of the, the best prayers are the ones that are hard to understand, right? When we struggle for the words. God, God, God doesn't care about our, our verbosity. God doesn't care about our command of English, he cares about our heart when we come to Him in faith, in prayer. 
in our fasting or, or just our, our religious rituals, right? Maybe a lot of us don't fast today. It's not doesn't mean, I don't think, to our society what it meant to Jesus' society, but, but he called out the people of his day for doing even something like that just to be seen, right? And, and we, we do that. We do things often hoping that people will notice what we do. So even in our good works, we're not always pure in our motives. Is everybody feeling really good about themselves right now? <laughs> Jesus has challenged us with these things through the Sermon on the Mount and hopefully has, has turned some things upside down or right side up in our life and in our thinking and in the way that we live. As he kind of gets in the home stretch of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks to us about our treasure. And he challenges us with the treasuring of finite things, that, that we treasure things that, that at some point won't be anymore, and challenges us to treasure the things that will never fade. The Apostle Paul calls it the infinite worth of knowing Christ, that there's nothing greater and the infinite worth of knowing Christ. And the Apostle Paul, like this is a guy that when he came to know Christ, his life got quite a bit more difficult than it was before knowing Christ, right? He, he had a standing in his society. He was somebody revered, respected, and he came to know Christ. He was a persecutor of the church and he came to know Christ and then became persecuted for the church. His life was hard. And he says there's nothing greater than the infinite worth of knowing Christ. It's all worth it. Every ounce of suffering, every ounce of adversity, it's worth it for knowing Christ. Paul had his eyes on eternity, not, not on the here and the now, but he had his eyes on, on the life to come. And Jesus challenges us with that and tells us that we can know where our treasure is because our heart is in the same place. You can't separate what you treasure and where your heart is. And so he challenges us to think about that. He challenges us with anxiousness and our propensity to worry about what tomorrow is going to bring. Right? He reminds us that, that God takes care of the birds. The birds don't do anything for him. He takes care of the flowers. They don't do anything for him. And how much more valuable are, are we as human beings that have capacity to know him? We have more value, and so Jesus challenges us, like, don't, don't worry about tomorrow because God loves you. We're told in the Bible in Romans chapter 8 that, that if we love God and if we're called according to His purpose, that everything works out for our good. Now, that doesn't mean everything is good, but it means that everything for the Christian works towards their good. The non-Christian doesn't have that promise in their life. I sleep at night because I believe that with all my heart to be true. That in the worst things in my life, God is working for my good. Only God can do that. And if that's true, and if I'm a child of His, if I'm a friend of His, if I belong to Him, I have nothing to worry about when tomorrow comes, or next week, or next month, or next year. We're challenged in the Sermon on the Mount with judging others, right? That, that we look at others and we impose oftentimes a different standard on others than we impose on ourselves, right? We're, we're gracious to ourselves, merciful to ourselves, not always so much 
to other people, right? We're challenged with that and challenged to, to look at ourselves before we look at others. We're challenged in the Sermon on the Mount with asking and seeking. We're reminded that God is a good father. He's a good father. Not, not everybody's had a good father, and so you might not have in your mind a concept of what a good father is, but, but God is a good father. He's a good father, and, and we can ask things of him. And just like our kids, like sometimes, especially when they're little, your kids ask you for something, and sometimes you just shake your head because it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but they don't know. Right? They don't always know when they're asking for ridiculous things, or they don't always know when they're asking for things that aren't good for them. My kids, when they were little, they, they wanted ice cream for every meal. And I had to say no because it's, it's not good. Like once in a while, that's a good thing, but it's not good for every meal to have ice cream, right? And when we say no, because <laughs> when, you, when you're an adult, you can do whatever you want. But <laughs> But, but we, we say no sometimes because we love our kids, right? Not because we're mean. And God exemplifies, like even though like we might be good parents, God, God is good beyond how we're good and we're reminded of that in what we ask and what we seek. We're challenged with doing towards others. Not, not doing towards others, like not putting good out in the world so good will come back to us. We don't subscribe to this kind of idea of karma. But, but we're challenged with being intentional in doing good to everybody as we would want them to do to us without qualification, right? We're not giving a qualifier that says do good to those who do good to you. We're, we're told to do to others as you would have them do to you without any qualifiers whatsoever as a reflection of our faith. And then we're told that all of these things, like that the outcome of one's way of living will be evident in the fruit of one's life, right? Our, our life, like we bear fruit. There are results that show in our life based on how we live. And those results will point to the things that we believe. Every, everybody here, has, like you all have faith in someone or something. Like we all have faith. Right? There's no such thing as a person in the world that doesn't have faith in something or someone. And wherever that faith is directed, whether it's, it's inward or whether it's outward or upward or, or wherever it's directed, there, there's going to be fruit in our life that shows where our faith lies. Kind of like not being able to separate what you treasure and where your heart is. The fruit of our life cannot be separated from where our faith lies. And we're reminded about that by Jesus. No, knowing about God is one thing, but knowing God is an entirely different thing. Like they're not the same thing. You can know a lot about God, but not know God. And we're challenged in all of this that we would be known by God so that we would know Him, right? That's what Pastor David preached on last week. And so you put all of this together. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, when he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's what he's talking about. Everything that has come before this moment, starting in Matthew chapter 5, and living the way that Jesus has called us to live is equated to the wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And we're told that the, that the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. That, that tells us that just because we live the way that Jesus lives in the world that he created, it doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy. <laughs> right? We're, we're talking about a, a proverbial storm here. You, you ever had seasons in life where you just feel like the rain is falling and the floods are coming and storms beating on your house. We, we've all had those seasons of life and probably will have those seasons of life. But we're promised not that life will be absent of storms, but that in the midst of the storms that the house won't fall because it had been founded on the rock, that, that we have paid attention to our foundation. And our foundation, unlike mine and my silly story, is, is level that we've put thought into it, that we've paid attention to it, that we've been intentional about the foundation upon which we build our lives. And so again, we're, we're not promised the absence of difficulties, but we are promised that when the difficulties come, if our, if our foundation is right, then the house will be right also. Conversely, in verse 26, that everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And we know the result. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house. And not only did it just fall, but it said great was the fall of it. We've all seen on the news this year, the, I remember the, when Yellowstone flooded, that there, you saw the house that just got washed down the river, an entire house. Right? We saw it in Florida recently. Um, houses just washing away. <laughs> Great is the fall of it. Who knows these words of Christ and says, you know what? I, I don't agree with all of that. Maybe some of the Sermon on the Mount has, has ruffled your feathers or stepped on your toes. It has mine, so I'm sure that it has for some of you as well. And we're told, like, don't, don't be indifferent towards the words of Christ. Don't ignore the words of Christ. There, there are many ways in which we build our lives upon foundations that are not stable. And the primary way that we build our life upon a foundation that isn't stable is by ignoring the words of Christ. To hear them and say, you know what, I don't, I don't, I don't like that one. That's building our house on a foundation that's unstable and building our house on a foundation that won't last. Jesus ends this section, or it ends the section, Matthew ends the section, saying that when Jesus, in verse 28, had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Think about the scribes of Jesus' day as like the court stenographer, right? Just keeping the record of, of what's going on in the courtroom. And every once in a while, someone has to ask the stenographer, hey, can you read this back? Right? These are the scribes of, of Jesus. They're just taking down information. The scribes, they're not authoritative. They're just keeping the record of, of what went down. And these people were astonished that Jesus didn't just stand up there and, and read a scroll. Right? They're astonished that he was speaking as one who had authority. Not somebody just relaying information. He's doing more here than just relaying information. He's speaking authoritatively and he's telling them things that matter in life. And so the question that I would pose to all of us today is that 
do we look at Jesus as one who has authority? Do we look at Jesus as one who has authority? Recently, we, we had a conversation with a man who, uh, who, who we've been conversing with, who, who has a different faith than we do. And we've had some really neat conversations about his faith and our faith and have been able to figure out maybe some areas where, where we have similar beliefs, but other areas where, where we don't believe the same thing at all. And he would say about Jesus that, that Jesus didn't resurrect because Jesus didn't die. That's, that's, the, that's his faith. Good teacher, prophet, somebody to be revered and respected, but not necessarily authoritative because he's not God. The Christian belief is that Jesus is God in human flesh. And if that's true, not if in questioning it, but logically, if that's true, then everything that Jesus says matters. Everything. Tim Keller talks about that if Jesus resurrected from the dead, like if, he really, if that really happened, if he really did come out of the grave, Everything he says matters. Everything he says is primary and is of utmost importance. Because if he resurrected, that, that means that he, he truly is God. Apostle Paul says everything hinges on the resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the wheels of the bus of Christianity fall off. And so the crowds this day, they, they were astonished and recognized that Jesus was speaking to them as one who had authority. So again, the question to us here today is, does Jesus have authority? And maybe, maybe I shouldn't ask it that way because the Bible says that, that Jesus has all authority. <laughs> maybe the better question is, do you submit to Jesus' authority? Do you recognize his authority because he has it? Matthew 28 tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that, that he created everything and everything, the entirety of creation holds together because of him. I read a couple of years ago uh, in an article in Popular Science that, that uh, I forget all the numbers, but back in the 70s, uh, we developed this Voyager type spacecraft and sent it out into space with the goal of, of reaching deep space so that we could study deep space. And the plan was that it would take 20 years. I forget how fast it's traveling, but pretty fast. Um, 20 years to get to deep space. Just constant straight line out, in, out into the sky, and it would take 20 years to get to deep space. Well, this thing is still going over 40 years later and just reached deep space a couple of years ago. That's how big our universe is. And Colossians 1 tells us that it's Jesus who holds it all together. So he, he has all, all the authority that there is to have. Do you recognize it? Do you submit to his authority? And, and if you do, then the fruit of your life will show these things that we have talked about in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the last thing that, that we ever want to do here is, is send you out just with a heavy backpack full of rocks saying, do all these things that we know that you can't do. So that's not the goal today, so don't, don't hear that. <laughs> Hear this today, and I've already said this, but, but Jesus has succeeded where we failed. He has lived the life that we're incapable of living. He's lived in perfect obedience to his Father in a way that you and I can't do. On our best day, we can't do. He's done it. And so the Christian life is, is 
coming to that understanding, taking it on faith that it's true. And, he, and the Bible tells us that it's even God who grants us that faith. We don't even muster it up, but He gives us that faith to believe it to be true. And then as we trust in Him, coming back to this big word again, this imputation happens where, where He gives us His perfect obedience to the Father. He imputes to us His righteousness. And in that imputation, He enables us through the power of His Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, to live more and more like this. We're never going to nail it. Never. This side of heaven, we aren't. And that's not an excuse to not even try, but we're not going to nail it. And so that's why we have faith. That's why God grants us repentance. Even our repentance isn't even our own. The Bible tells us that He grants that to us, right? Coming to Him and recognizing, I blew it today, Lord. Please forgive me. Please help me to not blow it again even though you know you will, right? The Christian life is just a cycle of, of repenting <laughs> over and over and over and over and over again, right? Recognizing, I, I didn't measure up, I fell short. That's what we learn from the Sermon on the Mount is, is one, that we can't, two, that, that He can and that He did, and that we take it all on faith, trusting Him as we move forward and, and as we kind of progress, for lack of a better term, in our, in our faith and in our understanding of these things. Maybe today we live a little bit differently than we lived yesterday, and maybe tomorrow we'll look even a little bit different than today, right? Because that's what God does in us. The Bible tells us that He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so as time goes on, we more and more become like Him, I hope I'm more like him today than I was a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. And I hope that in 10 years from now, that I'll be a little more like him than I am today. And that's his work in us. It's his work in us. So, so take some encouragement from this, not, not, not a backpack full of rocks and not a heavy load to say that, okay, I can't even do these things on my best day, but be encouraged that Christ has done what you couldn't do. And to take that on faith and to believe in him and let him do his work in your life, continuing as you go to submit to His authority. The problem with that is that, like I take authority back often. <laughs> you probably do too, right? And so over, like part of our repentance is, is coming to Him and, and submitting again to His authority in our lives and trying to live the way that He's called us to live, to bear the fruits of repentance, the Bible calls it. So be, be encouraged with that today um, to submit to Christ and His authority because He is good. And his, his, like we're not under His thumb. He's good and He's for us. And He laid down His life for us and He considers us once His enemies, now His friends. And He's for us. And so in these things, as we try to live counterculturally and counterintuitively, that, that He's good and He'll continue that work in us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning, um, thankful for your words. We're thankful um, just that we have uh, a Bible that records uh, your life and, and your words. We're thankful for the different accounts of it and thankful that you uh, have given us uh, an ability to read and to understand these words. And so I would pray today that, uh, that we would understand what you have spoken to us, not just intellectually, but that it would, the truth would sink into our hearts and deep into our bones, uh, that you would help us as imperfect, flawed people 
uh, to live more and more in accordance with your word and your will, that you would work out salvation in our lives uh, so that we would be um, salt and light here at this church, drawing people uh, not to a church, but drawing people to you. So we pray that you would help us uh, in that endeavor uh, and that you would bring people uh, to faith in Christ uh, through the way that we live and through the things that we do. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.